0: Hello, and welcome to Grapevine, the podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we're going to focus on narratives pertaining to the history of gender and gender roles.
1: All right, so in our quest for ever more involved and controversial topics, now we're going to tackle gender.
0: In just one hour!
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, not the whole thing. No, we're going to talk mostly about the history of, of gender construction on this episode, as you just said, because it's such a huge and complex issue, and we want to give it a fair treatment. We're going to probably spread this out over a few episodes, uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about historical stuff mostly this time, or we're going to try to anyway. It's it's actually very hard to talk about the history of gender construction, because just about everything you find that's historical about gender is rife with its own gender biases, and it's right, some, sometimes yep. it's hard to get a handle on on all of it. We like to usually start our discussions with a uh, what well, we refer to a poll, or refer refer to some research to give an indication of what the popular perception is of the topic we're addressing. But gender is such a, a ubiquitous, and it's so it's 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 everywhere we look. In media and just you know advertising, but it's also a very deep thing in human life or in, in our cultural life. I mean, you you often hear parents of small children talking about, uh, even the ones who they want to sort of shield their children from gender stereotypes and and gendered way of ways of thinking, but. Then they, they throw their hands up in exasperation and talk about how no matter how much they try, their little boy still wants to play with guns and their little girl still wants to right, play with yeah. baby dolls. And and they often surrender to the notion that that gender is a biological imperative because of, of as hard as they worked for their kids not to be con, uh, affected by gender stereotypes, they, they couldn't seem to stop it. But all it really speaks to that even small children are impacted by these things is how pervasive these things are culturally and how even small children can't be completely uh, shielded from them. And some, No matter what you do as a parent, your child is going to be exposed to these things through the media or through their relatives who, who don't care as much about <laughs> shielding them from gender mm-hmm. stereotypes mm-hmm. as you do or from children at the daycare or, or the school that you send your – I mean, one way or another – Children are going to pick up on these things, and they are everywhere. That's so pervasive, you couldn't possibly uh, shield your children from them. So, to jump to the biological uh, theory right away uh, is probably a pretty big mistake. But that's one of the things we're going to talk a lot about in this episode, too, because the biological imperative seems to be a major feature of our current gender attitudes. And by that, I mean a lot of the gender roles that we accept in our culture, in Western culture especially, they're often sold to us as being something that's tied to gender. Men are from, uh, are tied to sex, are tied to biological right, uh, right, right. Uh, characteristics. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus. That kind of thinking, you know, literally saying that we come from different planets. Like in in our in our deepest biology were so different that you could say we don't even come from the same planet is kind of the the popular notion. And not only is this the popular notion among lay people, but there are, is even quite a bit of so-called scientific research trying to reinforce these notions, although when you look into the these studies and so on, you often find that they're not very well done, the methodology questionable. Of course, the assumptions are... Uh, n- not scientific at all. And we've talked a little bit about some of those things uh, in the last episode, and we'll continue to talk about those things in this episode a little bit. But, uh, Jazz, you've got actually quite a bit of uh, experience, and you've done quite a bit of research along these lines, because one one thing that we can say if these gender roles are biological imperatives is that if if they were, then... Everybody in all cultures and at all periods of time would perceive gender the exact same way. Right,
2: right, right. Which
1: isn't the case.
2: Yeah. Um, And, yeah, if you go back through history, you'll see that there are different ideas about what gender roles were supposed to be or what was it that uh, defined the difference between men and women. Even some of the things that you were just talking about, about the way in which Today, parents might think that they're they're trying to raise their children so that they won't have any kind of gendered notions, but they still are attracted to uh, something that signifies gender. I'm thinking about, for instance, there was a parent that called in to a radio, to the On Point radio show, when Cordelia Fine was talking about her book Delusions of Gender, and the parent was saying that. Her daughter still wanted to wear dresses even though she had thought she was raising her daughter not to have gendered notions. So wearing a dress somehow to the parents seemed like this is an inherent sign of uh, that there's a biological imperative about gender. But if you go back even a hundred years, all children wore dresses <laughs> up to a certain point.
1: Well, um, right, and, and even her child, maybe she just likes dresses. I mean, Yeah,
2: or even the notion that pink is for girls and blue is for boys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You go back to the turn of the, uh, the 20th century, from the 19th to the 20th century, uh, it used to be the reverse. It used to be that blue was said to be this kind of soft color that was more feminine, and pink was a more decided color, so that it was more <laughs> masculine. Um <laughs> But yeah, I I think the whole idea of the that men and women are exactly the opposite, and that this opposition is hardwired into us—that women are nurturing and men are aggressive—this, besides looking at the science of it, when I hear that, I question it immediately because that whole idea of opposite sexes is historically a fairly new idea. Yeah. Um, it comes into being around the 18th or 19th century. And if you go back before that period, you had an idea that was probably goes all the way back to
1: Aristotle,
2: that men and women are very, very close to being like each other, biologically close to being like each other.
1: Not not opposites at all?
2: No, not opposites. Um, That uh, if you look at scientists or medical practitioners, in the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, their idea of women's biology versus men's biology was that um, women's organs that identified them as female were just a version of male organs, but they were interior rather than exterior, um, and that what made men and women different from each other was that. All uh, fetuses were originally uh, male, but that if the pregnant woman received the perfect amount of heat, she would have a male baby. But if something went wrong and uh, her womb wasn't exactly the right temperature, then she would have a female child. So there was still this idea that uh, women were less than men, but they were like one step down from them. They weren't at exactly the polar opposite end of the spectrum. Mm. And this extended to ideas even that um, girls could, uh, under very unusual circumstances, become boys. And that was probably because there were some instances in which boys had been misidentified as girls at birth and raised as girls. But then when they hit puberty, it became clear that they were boys. And in order to explain this, they didn't say, oh, well, they've been misidentified. They had this idea that uh, something happened. Maybe the the heat became the right amount at puberty, and this particular person then became the more perfect sex, that is, became male. Hmm. Um, So you have, in that period, the idea that they're very close and that gender is even something fairly fluid, that you can become, one one person can become something else. And you see that extending up even into the Renaissance period. If you're familiar with Shakespeare's plays, a lot of the comedies are based on the idea of having you know, boys playing female characters The female characters then dress as boys and of course this was because women weren't allowed on the stage but it was also a very acceptable idea because they thought of men and women as not being that far apart from each other especially at younger ages so you you have for instance in a play like twelfth night a brother and sister who are twins who can be mistaken for each other and uh, the male twin, towards the end of the play, uh, someone refers to him and says uh, says of him that he is both a man and a maid, because "maid" was the word that they they used for virgin young people, whether they were male or female. Hmm. You find the same thing in Chaucer, where there's a young squire who is said to be as comely as any young maid, because being a young man he has uh, he's beautiful and he's beautiful in the same way that a young woman would be beautiful and also he is virginal he's a, a maid so this idea that men and women are opposite really comes in more in the 18th and 19th century um we have this idea which is sometimes called the idea of separate spheres where men are aggressive and women are nurturing Men are assertive, and women are passive. Women are naturally chaste and virtuous. Men are more sexually promiscuous. And in every case, whatever the male quality is, the female quality is exactly the opposite. Men are naturally rational. Women are naturally emotional. Hmm. And this extended not just to talking about personality traits, but they had biological backup for this and a lot of the medical texts at the time were looking into investigating what was it that made women so much exactly the opposite of men and so now why is this happening at this period of time why do you have this change in the way that men and women are viewed
1: yeah and and also why not not just that in terms of how they think about it, but there seems to be a a decided drive to prove that it's scientifically true, not right, just something right. it's that not they just, believe.
2: Not right. It's not just culture. It's it has to have scientific empirical uh backup. And the the right. reason seems to be that if you go back again to the earlier period, men's position and women's position Um, Men were hierarchically higher up on the status than women were. And this was not thought of as something biological, but this was just the way things were. This is the way God had ordained things to be. This was part of the whole idea that was known at the time as the great chain of being. Or actually, it wasn't known at that time. It's what we call it. People today refer to it as the great chain of being.
1: Right. And
2: that idea was that everyone's place in society was something which was sort of carved in stone. That the mm-hmm. king was the king by birth. Right. The serf was a serf by birth. You couldn't change your position. So men and women were of different levels on the great chain of being, although women were only one step down from men. Again, they were thought of it as being very close together. So as you move into the eighteenth and nineteenth century, you have this idea that each person has individual rights, and it's those individual rights which determine the way society should function, and that you can move up and down the social ladder. You're not fixed in one place. And because of that, women, among many other groups, started to say, hey, you know, I'm a human being. I have individual rights. Why shouldn't I be allowed to vote? Why shouldn't I be allowed to own property or have any of these other rights?
1: Oh, imagine that.
2: Yeah. So the the new justification for why women could not become educated, could not go out to work, could not vote, was that they were biologically incapable of doing these things. So it's not that there's some kind of social tyranny that's being imposed on people. It's just nature. It's just the way nature intends things to be. And the same kind of argument was used to justify racism. Right. Um, And so you have all this effort and all this energy being put into medical studies to prove this. One of the people who was advocating for women to get the vote in Parliament in the 19th century, many years actually before they got the vote in England, was John Stuart Mill. And in one of the speeches that he gave before Parliament, he was making the point of, we say that by nature women can't do any of these things. Women can't work, women can't vote. If by nature they can't, then why are we working so hard to support laws and create laws to make sure that it doesn't happen? Because if by nature somebody can't do something, you don't need to have human institutions created to make sure that it doesn't happen.
1: Um, Yeah, I'm pretty sure there's no laws on the books that say if you throw a ball up in the air, it has <laughs> right. to come back down. Yes, exactly. You don't Not
2: need human laws to support natural laws. No. So um, so he was making this point that uh, the whole natural law argument was an ideology that was being used to support what human beings wanted to do in Parliament, the men in Parliament wanted to do. Right. Um, and when... Today we look back and we look at some of those uh, medical findings they seem ridiculous to us today. I talked to many of my students about some of these things and they they laugh they find them so absurd and yet today you find very similar arguments about women being inherently hardwired to be nurturing completely acceptable so there seems to be a disconnect there where in the past we can see the absurdity of something, but in the present we are too quick to discount our own cultural lens and the way our cultural lens might be influencing the way that we're interpreting supposedly empirical data. So, so, like, some uh, some of the things that they said in the 19th century were, for instance, that Women couldn't become educated past a certain age because there's only a certain amount of blood in the human body and if that blood goes to the brain because you're studying in college, then that blood is not available to the womb and the woman will become barren. Um, And since the woman's main function is to have children, she can't be allowed to go to college. Very similar kinds of Arguments were made, for instance, about why women couldn't vote. Women can't vote because, uh, women are naturally emotional, very much like the women are naturally nurturing idea. Men are naturally rational, and so, uh, you can't have people voting who can't understand the rational basis of
1: arguments. I find it rather interesting how the, the new evolutionary ideas you know, introduced by Darwin and Origin of Species were sort of employed in all of this, like well, you know we have to uh the women have to have children that's their natural function, you know right that's how that's how we've survived, so let's define everything the woman has to be in terms of whether or not she's fit to have children, like you know like you were saying about how she couldn't go to couldn't go to college because. On one hand, if you really thought that was true, that she couldn't be educated past a certain point or else she'd become barren, that still leaves it up to the woman to decide whether or not she's okay with becoming barren, <laughs> right? <laughs> you have to add on that other piece that says, but if she's barren, then her natural, you know, and again, I think I think that's kind of in the context of evolution, her natural purpose for being the way she is. Is contradicted, and so so we can't have that. Right, right.
2: Yeah, i mean I think the whole evolutionary uh, sort of determinism that we have today, and you go back again to racism, can be traced to sort of social Darwinism, and it's, mm-hmm. it's been used in race arguments, it's been used in class arguments, but it does seem to hold on with a real <laughs> grip to gender
1: arguments um, well yeah because as you were pointing out whatever whatever motivated them to come up with these what what today we would consider uh, just about everybody would consider crazy theories as you said even your students are laughing at them and yet we still cling to some of these notions so whatever cultural purpose they were serving back then they still serve that purpose yeah. a little bit today whatever that purpose is yeah of course there's we've already hit on some purpose in in the things you were describing. It's it's obvious that there was some hierarchy where men were above women before, like you said, the great chain of being, and that they were trying to preserve that position of status above women with these new ideas. Right, right. And so I think the natural thing to do is to say, well, you know, perhaps that's also why some of these ideas persist to this day. It's, a, it's an aspect of control. I mean, would I be jumping to a conclusion to say that? or
2: No, I, I think that's absolutely true. That it, it backs up a particular political and social positioning, and yet, people don't think of it that way. They think this is just the way things are, and if you question it, you're the one who has an ideological axe to grind. Mm-hmm. And that the people who have found that this is true, quote-unquote, are seeing things clearly, somehow without any cultural bias, without any kind of ideology. Um, I I think that this is especially, it becomes really clear when you listen to any of the radio shows in which uh, some of the people who have questioned some of the, Recent neuropsychology or evolutionary psychology findings when they go on the air and to call in show a lot of the people who call in are are sound fairly angry um and say they they tend to say two things: why do you want men and women to be exactly alike? <laughs> and none of the people are saying men and women are exactly alike,
1: right. Yeah, what you're referring to is that uh, there are a few in re- in recent years there have been a few researchers who have gone back and looked at the so-called scientific research, the recent scientific research that claims to be reinforcing or supporting certain gender stereotypes as biological. Right. Like they right. they found something in the human brain or they found something in their research that indicates oh this these stereotypes we have about gender well they're actually based on real biological differences or that's what the research is claiming yeah and what what a few researchers have done is, is they've gone back and looked at that same research and they've noticed that there are a lot of problems with it now these researchers i should say they will the first thing they will tell you is that they didn't go back to this research because they were trying to attack these ideas about gender they went back to this research to see if it was good science and now they're writing articles and books and they're they're talking on talk shows because they're trying to let people know hey there's a lot of bad science being done out there So, so their main target isn't even really the gender arguments or any of the politics at all it's they are scientists saying hey as scientists we need to have higher standards you know for scientific quality and everything else. Right, right, And they're casting a light on this as bad science, but as, as you're pointing out, when they go on radio shows or whatever, well, first of all, that's how they get on the radio show, because suddenly, because the bad science they're casting a light on is about gender, and everybody's interested in that. So that's how they get on the radio show in the first place. Yeah, but I think then,
2: that's one of the things that they point out, is that what big bestsellers these kinds of um, studies become, even when a lot of them, like the book Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, is just pseudoscience. But people embrace them. So that is, all, that also is probably a good indication that it's uh, not just empirical data, that there's something culturally going on when they, they are, they become such cultural bestsellers where people are looking for some kind of support for the status quo.
1: Yeah, right. And then when someone comes along and questions it scientifically, even that generates a lot of attention that might not normally get attention from the popular press or or popular audiences. Uh but because it's dealing with gender and it's 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 questioning this research that reinforces gender stereotypes, it gets this attention but, and and as you pointed out these people will get will go on their these radio programs and they'll talk about how well this scientific study doesn't seem right and this scientific study is wrong for this reason and that reason and as you pointed out people will people will call in and challenge the person about their own personal gender attitudes <laughs> instead of asking questions about the science and you know well, why is this scientific study bad and how could it be done better and you know uh, why are the results
2: uh, right right Talking
1: about what the results are and and what, how they came up with those results, no, they're just they're just asking the person what their political angle is, and not even thinking about their actual argument. Yeah,
2: I, there are uh, two things that I wanted to um, mention. One, a particular study, but then a more general basis for some of the findings. But the particular study, uh, the one that Cordelia Fine, who wrote *Delusions of Gender*, uh, talks about. Um, she talks about the study that was done by Simon Baron cohen that proved that women are naturally nurturing. And that's a pretty famous study. Lots of people cite it. But the proof of the way that they measured nurturance, that whether somebody was nurturing or not, was by self-reporting, which...
1: <laughs> they, they just have,
2: asked. They just asked, you know, are, are you on what kind sure, of scale... So, you yeah. know, one to ten. How nurturing are you? Right. Well, of course, that's going to have some kind of cultural <laughs> bias. I mean, the way people see themselves is not objective.
1: No. Um, no.
2: So that's that. Just as one study, but I think an underlying basis for a lot of these arguments is that they keep repeating the idea that gender is hardwired in the brain. And I I really, (laughs) that notion that something that's in the brain is hardwired is really false. I think maybe that's, besides talking about gender, that's a false idea that people have about the way brains work. Brains are plastic. They're not hardwired such that if the brain is doing one thing, it never adapts and becomes difference. Um, you could never learn anything if that were true. That's right. Um, and that also reminds me of a, of a different study someone recently did, uh, a woman named Louise Elliott, uh, who wrote a book called Pink Brain, Blue Brain, and she looked at neurological studies of infants, and then she looked at neurological studies of people at different ages, and she did find that gender difference increased as people became older because of the cultural changes that were going on. So sure, um, you might not have these neurological differences at birth, but they might develop because of the way that you're being taught. And if... People think, well, that's my political ideology or something. Um, something that goes beyond gender. That I was just reading recently had to do with uh, math skills, which people also think of as being hardwired in the brain. You're either yeah, a some, math some people person are... or you're not a math person.
1: Yeah, some people are good at it and some people aren't. Yeah, and
2: notion. yeah, gender does enter into that to some extent. A lot of people say women are not naturally. Um, math people, but I'm I'm sure there are men also who think, oh, I'm just not good at math. Well, it turns out there's no evidence that math skill is hardwired at all. But what does happen is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you come into the school system, maybe not having had as much advantage as somebody else in math, and you're not doing very well at first, and then you're told oh, math skills are hardwired, they're just something you're born with, then you give up, and, and your math skills become less and less. Right. Um, whereas if you're told, no, it's something that, it's not hardwired, it's something that will improve with work and practice, then everyone can develop math skills. Sure. Maybe not everybody becomes a, a
1: genius,
2: uh, but... Right. Everyone's but that's pretty whole, much at the same
1: level yeah yeah genius is a whole other thing yeah that's that's another thing people don't realize is that a math genius it is it's more about the genius part than the math part mm. uh, there they could be a genius at anything at math at playing the violin uh, but a lot of people equate math being really skilled with math with genius but as you just pointed out, math skill, anybody can be good at math as long as they don't get that self-fulfilling prophecy going. But a person who's a genius at math, well, they're probably just a genius. You don't have to put the at math part in there. (laughs) That's not really, that that doesn't really have anything to do with them being a genius. But so what we're seeing here is that the notion that of polar opposite genders, where, where you have to fit into one or the other. Yeah and not not just that you have to but just that you do that it's a scientific fact and this belief is so extreme that even scientists are trying to prove that it's true and they're resorting to all kinds of bad scientific methods to prove that it's true i mean let's let's just state definitively here that there's no scientific basis whatsoever for the notion of polar opposite genders or a gender binary this is a complete cultural construction and in any scientific studies that you might find out there if you look closely at them you'll find that they have huge problems or you'll at least find some other authors who are pointing out what the real scientific problems are so there's but it it seems like there's this really strong desire in the last several hundred years to maintain this notion of a gender binary but as we've already discussed there was already some gender hierarchy existed already now it wasn't the strict binary we have now obviously that sort of evolved for all the reasons that we were just discussing but it, this the gender binary that we have now is at least it, it does at least grow out of that original asymmetry that existed mm. in the great chain of being or whatever so right, how far right. back how far back do we go with that i mean
2: well yeah it, that's hard to determine because as we've been saying, people tend to look at things through the cultural lens, so they sometimes misinterpret what gender roles might have been, especially when you go back, as far back as you can go, when you go back to, say, prehistory. There have been, again, some recent studies which have questioned a lot of, the, of our ideas about what gender roles are in prehistory that this idea that the men go out and hunt the mammoth and bring the mammoth steak
1: home to the little woman. <laughs> uh, Who was dragged into the cave by her head. <laughs> yeah.
2: That, uh, yeah, that might have, there might be some problems with that idea.
1: And and the reason that the, those ideas came up in the first place was because when when an archaeologist or an anthropologist or whatever went into a situation to analyze some some data, either from a, a pre-industrial tribe or from a dig, they interpreted some of the data with their own gender ideas in mind. Right, right.
2: Well, yeah.
1: Like, give me give me some examples of that.
2: Well, the, the one um, that's been talked about a lot recently is um, this new discussion about what the Venus figurines uh, might
1: mean. Um, what are those exactly?
2: The Venus figurines are—I'm um, I'm sure people have probably seen them. They're—they're they're small statues. They are all of women. Um, the women's figures are usually all of a very similar type. The women look—they—they—they they, they have the same positioning. They have their hands over their breasts. They usually are quite zoftig, I guess, I would use the word. Sometimes there are rolls of fat shown on the figure, and they were nicknamed Venus by the the person who first found them, I guess, thinking that they might be some kind of um, fertility goddess who is being worshipped by men, or another idea that was put forward initially was that... um, I think they're uh, kind of. I I actually did see this written by uh, an archaeologist suggesting that they were like an early version of clay boy. <laughs> yeah,
1: now, how far back do these go? They they're very ancient. Twenty seven thousand years. I think that's... Yeah, very old. Yeah. Some of, some of the very first examples of this kind of thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're trying to guess what this is. Uh, what its significance is like as they always do when they find these things, and you're saying that one one person suggested it was almost a kind of a soft core pornography or something right
2: right and one of the things that recently has been uh, shown that everyone who had looked at them had missed before is that they're wearing clothing They're not wearing clothing usually over their entire body. Some of them are wearing hats. Some of them are wearing belts. uh, Some of them are wearing these kind of string skirts. Mm. Um, um, A lot of this had been missed before and had been interpreted as hair braids or tattoos or body art. And then these three scientists, uh, Dr. Olga Soper, Dr. James out of Bosco and Dr. David Highland, um, they were looking at an excavation where a lot of the Venus figurines had been found, and I believe uh, Dr. Sofer found some fragments of clay that had uh, imprinted fine lines on them, and she was showing them to Dr. Out of Basio who uh, turns out is an uh, expert in uh, textiles. And he recognized that this was early this was these fine lines were actually um fabric. It was weaving. And they went back to look at the figurines and went, Oh, this is actually clothing. This is evidence that these people knew how to weave things and that the detail is actually so great on the figurines that they one speculation about what they might have been being used for is as patterns so you are trying to preserve the pattern of how to do this particular weave by putting it on this figurine and that figurine gets passed down to the next generation of weavers
1: this is this is a lot earlier for that kind of thing to develop than people thought right right yes
2: much much earlier to have um and and they say that um after they investigated it further, they found that they were probably making stuff that was of the quality of sort of fine linen as far as the clothing is concerned. But another very important part of that idea that they knew how to weave was that this affects our notion about how they were hunting.
1: Oh, right, because they would be using nets and things. Right.
2: If you know how to weave, you can make nets. Tribal groups that have the ability to, use, to to weave usually use uh, nets in hunting. There was a, a, an earlier scientist, actually Dr. Elizabeth Barker, who suggested that there should be this new idea called the String Revolution, instead of calling it the Stone Age, mm, um, right. that what the, the big change that might have happened around this time that allowed human beings to thrive Would have been net hunting. And then this also thinking about why nobody had thought about this before actually goes to another thing about the way gender influences investigation. Because um, in order to think about, well, how did people hunt in prehistoric times, you would send people out to look to do modern ethnography, to look at, well, how do people in similar groups hunt today sure and when people went out to do that when ethnographers went out to do that at first there was this assumption that women didn't hunt women stayed home with children and there was you know there was no gathering of food there was no hunting going on there so they went out with the men and the men were using spears to hunt antelope or Do something along those lines. Once the idea of well, maybe we should send some people back and have them hang out with the women as well. They found oh, (laughs) actually the women are net hunting. Which is net hunting is you would have a whole lot of people, so it takes most of the women and children, and probably some of the uh, men too. You'd go out into a field, you'd hold a net up at one end of the field, and then you'd send a whole bunch of people through to the other side of the field, beating the bushes, and you would drive the game into the net.
1: But you're saying that previous studies focused so much on what the men were doing because they thought, well, we know what the women are doing. They're staying home and doing the yeah. same thing that women do back in the United States and <laughs> back in England. You know, that's what women always do. What are the men doing? As soon as they realized that the women might be doing something else, they found out, indeed they were, and it was very interesting, and it, it said a lot about maybe what earlier cultures did.
2: Right. And then once they, they started questioning that, you know, we, we all have this idea. In fact, I, several times when I've been in museums since I read this, I've noticed how prevalent the picture of this is in paintings or in dioramas that show prehistoric groups that you have the men out hunting something like a mammoth. (laughs) And um, the idea now is that that probably is false, based on a couple of things. Um, One is that if you look at historical records about when did people hunt animals as large as mammoths, you can see that in Africa, people did not hunt elephants until after the Iron Age. They didn't have the tools to tackle an animal that big. Hmm. So the idea that people with Stone Age tools would be attacking mammoths is probably false. And then if you go and look at the bone record, I believe Dr. Soper has examined uh, the bone record, and what she found by looking at the condition of the bones and where they've been found, what she concludes is that the mammoth bones that have been found where people have assumed these mammoth bones have come from hunting, they probably were not from hunting. They were being found in areas near water holes, and it was probably sick animals that had died near watering holes because uh, sick animals, weak animals, tend to hang around the watering hole because they're not capable of moving very far off and they need the water.
1: All right, so wait a second here. So so they didn't go out and heroically hunt (laughs) and bring down these big mammoths. They just found out where the mammoths hung out and waited for one of them to drop dead.
2: And then they ate them. It's actually... Shows they were a lot smarter.
1: <laughs> no, that's that's brilliant. I'm not I'm not criticizing the intelligence of the move. I'm just thinking, you know, that's really very different from what people think. Yeah, interesting.
2: So, yeah, so you have there much more the idea that uh, women probably participated a lot in uh, food gathering, food net hunting, and then they've been finding that they probably also gathered a lot of roots and vegetables. And even if you look at, again, modern ethnography, and if you try to uh, ignore the idea that you, you come in with the preconception that men are the breadwinners and women stay at home, you do find that some women also hunt with projectile weapons. Uh, some right. of the Inuit hunt, uh, female Inuit hunt with projectile weapons.
1: Okay, so uh, now a lot of these things were blocked from us really getting to know it until recently because of certain biases people had out in the field. But, I mean, this this doesn't just go for, for our understanding of ancient people. It also goes for, I mean, when we find people in um, medieval or in just in the prehistoric era, for example, if we unearth a, a skeleton that has weapons, they almost immediately assume that that's a man of great power or authority or whatever without even testing the skeleton to see what... Its sex is if it was male or female. I mean, isn't that right?
2: Yeah. Uh, there was a recent case in which they did test uh, a couple that had been found together, and one of them was found with weapons, one of them was found wearing jewelry. And the assumption had been made for some time that the one with the weapon buried beside was a man, and the one wearing jewelry was a woman. But then they did tests and found well no actually it was the woman who was buried beside the weapon and the man who was wearing the jewelry.
1: so there there's a lot of archaeological evidence that's been analyzed and studies that have been done that have a lot of bias involved with them and so it's it's difficult to know what things in the archaeological record you know based yeah. on everything you've been saying it's it's difficult to know what in the archaeological record is because it's stated like it's fact. I mean, let's yeah, just, yeah. you know, when you take a class in these things or you read a textbook, it's stated like, well, we know these things. We've right. collected enough evidence to know that this is how it is. Well, um, like,
2: like I said, when I've been through some museums more recently, I was in Washington at one of the Smithsonian Museums. I was at another museum down in Connecticut. Um, a couple of years ago, and they all have this, you know, that same diorama right. of the mammoth being dragged down by the, the male hunters. Um, so hmm. we've accepted this as fact, and it gets visually represented everywhere, and you know, people just think that's the way it is.
1: All right, so let's let's imagine for a second then that, scientifically speaking, we have no reason to think that. You know, in the 200,000 years or so that modern humans are supposed to have existed, we have no reason to think that there weren't plenty of what we might today call egalitarian uh, societies where, you know, the division of labor between men and women was, you know, not decided by gender mm-hmm. lines or whatever. Right, right. We, we don't have any we have we don't have any reason to think that societies like this didn't exist. And maybe we've even got plenty of reason to think they did. But certainly now. Yeah it's it's a fairly global phenomenon not not every uh, society not every culture but certainly the the largest ones are this way the so-called developed ones are this way and and probably the majority of them all over are this way where you have divisions of labor according to gender line and you just have this 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 dual gender kind of thing going on It seems like there must have been a time in history where this sort of thing kind of got started and then snowballed into what we know today is not just the gender binary, but this stubborn defense of the gender binary to the status quo that that obviously benefits some at the expense of others. And that's one of the reasons why it's so vehemently defended. Mm, mm. But but where do you think that I mean, now we're, we're going into something really theoretical here. I mean, obviously. We don't even know the answer to this question, and again, a lot of the science we would use to analyze it has its own biases. But but what you know, what would you guess based on your research or your ideas? What 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 kind of what kind of processes and things were going on? At, and at what point in human history did this really start to evolve into what it is now?
2: Well, I, I can think of one thing that that's fairly early that I was reading recently that had done studies of uh, plow cultures versus non-plow cultures. And studies, especially of civilizations that had developed from plow cultures versus ones that had developed from different farming methods. And this, their hypothesis was that a lot of the modern-day status difference between men and women could be traced to the use of the plow because when you're farming, women could do farming that uh, where you could farm and then go do something else for a little while. Like if you are nursing a child, you can nurse the child and then you can go do some of the farming and then you can come back. But you can't do that when you're using plows. It needs a more steady uh, devotion of time and yeah, also right. needs more upper body strength.
1: So this, this started a, a association between men doing the plowing, like more specifically, and mostly men doing the plowing, and then women were taken out of that role, and that started kind of a, a cultural divide that sort of widened and developed?
2: Yeah, that's the, that's the hypothesis, I guess. Um, that's and, interesting. You know, I do think that, um, we do see status attached to whoever seems to be the person who is bringing in food. So. Mm-hmm. Going back to the Venus figurines for a minute, there some of the speculation about what they are is that they, they show the high status of women mm-hmm. um, and the fact that they are sometimes shown with um, rolls of fat on the body is that this is a sign of, oh, look at the plenty that these women have brought to us right, um, right. by their use of nets. Whereas, of course, now we move into the plow culture it's the men who are more primarily being the ones who are are credited with feeding everyone well
1: you know i I've also my own personal observations and some of the things I've read and looked at there seems to it seems that the beginning of the gender divide well certainly the the beginning of class divide more generally speaking starts. Around the time you start getting cities, of course, mm-hmm. and you start getting a you start getting a class of priests, and you start getting a class of warriors and soldiers, right. mm-hmm. and and you know you start seeing some gender lines being drawn there. You know, so it seems like there must have been something right before the founding of cities, or as the cities are being founded, that that contributed to uh, the notion that. You know when the when the priestly class emerges and when the warrior class emerges that that some of those roles will be occupied by men or, or even most of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, you you certainly had female priests and female warriors too, but that even very early on in a lot of well, we don't know so much about the early cities, but the early empires uh, that were obviously built on city states and and whatnot. It seemed like already there was a lot of sort of male dominance in those in the narratives that they had in their myths and so on i mean you see that already kind of taking hold in the early sumerian myths and right in the early egyptian myths so yeah you, you really have to go pretty far back and it i don't know if we'll ever know but well just
2: to add on to what you're saying this is actually much later but i think relates the idea of cities and a warrior class is uh, what I was reading about women being warriors or women owning their own castles or having their own retinue of soldiers uh, being more acceptable through about the middle of the Middle Ages about the 12th and 13th centuries oh, one thing yeah, that I was right. surprised to find out were, were that You even had women who were acting as sheriffs um, during the 12th and 13th centuries Mm -hmm. A lot of times women who were uh, widows took over that role of being sheriff. And the person who was writing that article was talking about, well, what happened between that period of time and the period of time in which it became much less acceptable for women to be warriors or soldiers or sheriffs? And what she thinks is that you changed from sort of feudal landed nobility where the soldiers would have been in the domestic sphere, so to speak. They're in the castle. They're being trained. They're part of the family in a way. Mm. That you move away from that to having a, a monarchy where the soldiers are all being trained in a central City that is the place where the monarch is. Um, and as you move from one to the other, women being soldiers is, is less acceptable because it moves out of that domestic sphere to something a more centralized government and military system. So that kind of goes along with what you were saying about the development of cities. And the other thing about the development of Cities and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't wouldn't um, plow agriculture have something to do with the development of cities?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask. Mm. I mean, from what I understand, and the way the tradition that I studied in uh, human behavioral science, it would suggest that you can have cities before agriculture, and often did, mm-hmm. because cities built up around markets. First and foremost, and you can have markets. You don't have to have agriculture to have markets. I mean, markets mm-hmm. have been around mm-hmm. ever since populations reached a certain critical, uh, critical mass. Now, empires is a different thing. Uh, really, city states is a different thing. You pretty much do have to have agriculture in those cases, but you can have cities before that, and in and, and the cities are almost always going to have these hierarchies. And so that's why I say, well, I mean, like you were just pointing out, as soon as when, when things were more clannish, I guess, you yeah. know, and, and, it, and the soldiers were part of a, a family group, uh, it, it made more sense for the – or at least it didn't jar anybody's brains that much for the woman to lead that situation. But when things got centralized, it changed a little bit. There's no real reason for that change to equal – I mean, you know, just because you're getting more centralized, it doesn't necessarily follow that women can no longer – Fill these roles. Yeah. So yeah. what what is it about the centralizing effect? You see what I'm saying that yeah. that causes that. And that's what we don't know. We don't. It's hard to understand. I mean, one theory that I've heard is that that uh, it kind of starts with markets because because trade. That when trade first starts getting established in uh, the Middle East and in other places, that even though uh, women might be running uh, places within the a trade location Mm
2: -hmm.
1: they're trading with the men of the distant places
2: oh right 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 so that the women wouldn't have been able to travel
1: or or something like that right that's that's the idea or or it just it would have been a job relegated to the men for some reason and so the men would go they might trade with women at the trade location i mean women would were doing everything there but it was Men were trading with them, and, and if a man brought back something from a trading post that the women back at the camp would normally make or normally craft, you see what I'm saying? Then, uh,
2: then that makes them less. Uh, that lowers their status.
1: Exactly. Right. That that takes away that function in the in the camp, and so their their, their vital functions in the camp get whittled away. Right. And so that. That eventually transforms into, you know, when the when the towns, when the trade centers become cities, you know, it sort of builds on that notion. And also another another idea is that you were talking about the Venus figures, and and I think I think uh, one of the one of the statistics that was shared by those researchers was that they thought that maybe women were were uh, bringing in like seventy percent of yeah of the food yeah of the food or the calories that people were taking in and you pointed out that the the person who brought in the most food was usually the most celebrated group or whatever. Yeah. There's some suggestion that um that actually for for a lot of cultures at least in the in the Middle East and and where where towns and cities and agriculture kind of developed that for a long time there women sort of did did have a little more status than men so that as things were transitioning to towns and cities and agriculture men were responding to that And they were deliberately moving into higher status roles to sort of counter that. And then the momentum of that eventually carried forward into having cities where most of the priestly class, most of the warrior class, and most of the ruling class were men. And from that point forward, it just set up kind of a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm, right. Where the dominant group just keeps enhancing its, its status. But also because the, the the group that's being dominated over, they're given a chance to come into the dominant group if, as long as they follow certain rules. Well, then that divides them against each other. The the, the yeah. subject group is divided yeah, against yeah. each other in competition to get into the the dominant group, and of course that perpetuates things too. And that could, I mean. Not just can it go on for thousands of years, but obviously it has. Although let's point out that while a lot of this uh, sexual asymmetry and gender asymmetry was going on in cities perhaps as long as 10,000 years ago, they, it wasn't necessarily going on on the rest of the planet, obviously. So a lot of what we understand historically as gender asymmetry and as as these ideas that men are better than women or and or anything else – Those belong to not sometimes not just specific cultures, but specific classes in specific cultures.
2: Yeah, that's true. I mean, just to cite one example, I mean the um, the idea that women couldn't work in the Victorian period really only applied to the upper class because lower class women needed to go out to work, and then once the idea had been established for the upper class women. There was a drive to also make it apply to lower class women, um, right. although it was much more difficult because they they couldn't afford not to be left
1: right before. right so so these ideas you know we can talk about them originating say ten thousand years ago but but it seems pretty clear that for most of i mean first of all, a lot of people say modern humans emerged two hundred thousand years ago so if if a lot of these major differences only emerged ten thousand years ago, well that's practically yesterday in terms of, you know, historical time.
0: Mm-hmm. But then
1: you can narrow it down even further when you talk about, well when when did the notion become such a popular notion that you've got like a whole nation or a whole like the whole West basically right. has this idea. Yeah. Well that's even more recent still when you really, really think about it. And now of course we live in a time where as you as you pointed out at the beginning We've got this this extreme polarization between the sexes, which you know we talked about in a previous episode, in the conspiracy theories episode, about uh, the different types of false dichotomies that the West sets up in all kinds of different things: um, internal versus external, uh, individual versus social, yeah, all of these yeah. all of these false opposites. And it seems like gender, uh, our, our ideas of gender, are conforming to this, this general tendency the West has to create these binaries and these dualities and to insist that there's only these two possibilities and you, you can only believe one thing or the other and, and never the twain shall meet kind of deal.
2: Yeah, and you don't even have to pin down when any of this started or make any definitive claim about, for instance, what the Venus figurines meant or what role the women at that time played, but you can see that what is most influencing gender roles across
0: time is particular material conditions. I mean, of, like who is it that is being food, who isn't being food. So just the fact that those things are changing goes against this notion that we seem to have at the moment that these roles are completely fixed and hardwired. Which he has the question, why is it that this is such a strong idea at our time that I, I often get papers from students that,
2: again, ever since the beginning of time, men and women have and fill in the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I say, yeah, why, do, you know, why do you think that you know this?
1: Yeah. Well, you know what? Those are questions that we'll have to wait till next time. Yeah, yeah. And I can't wait for us to talk about them. But uh, in the meantime, I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, Thank you, Jazz, for being with me again. Thanks. And uh, join us next time, everybody. Uh, Thanks again for listening. Grapevine is a production of Aether Theatre. Music is provided by Chris Snook.